I'm Siri Lindley, two-time world champion, author, speaker, animal activist, survivor, and thriver. I have found a way to overcome every challenge and to take the impossible and make it possible. On my podcast, we're going to talk real life. We're going to get vulnerable. We're going to go first. You're not alone in your fears, your doubts, or your worries. The most successful people in the world have them. Stick with me on this journey. I will help you harness your power, claim your magic, and create the life that you dream of. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bedhead Chronicles. I am so excited today to welcome our guest, who is founder of Climb Leadership International. He was one of the top two executives at two of the biggest Wall Street firms in the world, Bloomberg and BlackRock Capital. He is a speaker. He is an author. He is a mountaineer. And through his Climb Leadership International, he coaches executives on public speaking, emotional intelligence, and executive presence. His book, he is a best-selling author, an incredible speaker, a talk radio host, and he also teaches leadership development at Columbia University. Now, this man is extraordinary. And the thing is that whether you are an entrepreneur, a business person, an athlete, or a stay-at-home mom, you can learn so much from this extraordinary man. So Chuck Garcia, thank you so much for blessing us with your presence. It's just such a gift to have you here. Well, I'm going to shoot that right back to you, Siri. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to contribute to your wonderful work. Well, thank you so much. My first question to you is, did you always know that you were going to be successful? Um, (laughs) I've never had that question. I, I am the product of a father. My father was a linguist. My mother was a concert pianist. And I was very fortunate that I grew up in a house with sound. And if the sound wasn't Beethoven, Bach, or Chopin, the sound was my father who spoke many languages. And what my father taught me was the love of language. What my mother taught me and my brothers was the love of music. The reason I'm using this as an answer is when you grow up in an environment that fosters the culture of learning, there's something I think that happens to people, even without us knowing exactly how do we define success and how do we know what success is when it's achieved. The one thing I learned from my parents is don't focus on that outcome. Focus on the inputs, focus on how you learn language. So my father spoke many languages, but it was the sounds of, 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 of letters, the sound of words, and words became sentences, which became paragraphs, which became the basis of how we communicate. To my mother, it was half notes, whole notes become the score. And when you listen to music, it's communicating in a different form, but it's communicating. So even though I didn't get my mother's musical talent, what I got from my father was the love of the language. So I never thought that even though we were all good students, my brothers and I, because we lived in a culture that fostered it, what I knew from my parents that if you just focus on doing the right things, 
then the success comes. So I guess in my, my senior year, I was that nerd in high school that was voted most likely to succeed. Um, and not, I think not because I was the most brilliant guy in the class, I certainly wasn't. I think I was just a product of an environment that fostered the characteristics that other people perceived would be ones that would succeed. And now I look back years later and how blessed I am to have had that background because I think that's what led me to my success. And, and the good mentors, the teachers, I give so much credit to all of the people that I looked up to that were generous and kind. And I think my mission in life as I go to work in the service of others, I simply learned it from people who taught me that. Yeah, well, you are so generously sharing that oh, all you. around the world in such beautiful ways. One thing I love about that story is the message I feel within that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's not just about reaching the top of the mountain, it's the journey, it's who you become along the way to achieving those goals. Is that, is that true for you? Well, I say that because I, I think that there, there's a difference in the way children grow up and parents' expectations of that child. And I say that because I teach at, at Columbia, a very high achieving place. But, and I will say this, many of the parents are taught to their children about grades. Okay, SAT scores. They put a metric to the inputs. I never had that as a child. Like that was not the conversation I had with my parents. My parents did not say, get a 99 and you'll get into an Ivy. That was never any part of our culture. Our culture was about the learning outcomes, about resilience, about trying and failing and trying and falling and trying to get it right. And, and, and I say that because I think there's a very big distinction about the way we teach people to, be, to help them to become a success. And I am the product not of the layer that appears on a resume. I am the product of the work that it took to put that stuff on the resume. So we grow up with a benchmark that is either pointed toward achievement or pointed toward how to achieve. And I'm fortunate that the conversations in our home were focused on doing the right things and success will come. Many of my students, sadly, and I'll say this very candidly because I share that with them, they're focused on the outcome. And, and there comes a whole lot of psychological Thunderdome issues with that because to me as a teacher, I don't want them to focus on what's going to happen when you get a report card from me. I could care less. That's not why I do this. And I think, Sarah, to your question is, each of us as students and teachers has to decide, what do we want out of this? I was just very fortunate because I was able to focus on the things that I, I came to recognize as priorities because I had loving parents that wanted that for me. And so that was always in my mindset. And I teach the same way. I teach to the to the inputs, I don't teach to the outcome. See, that to me is just such a beautiful and powerful gift to give as a teacher and as a leader. And I'm even relating it. I have a lot of athletes that listen to this podcast and so many athletes these days, there are so many gadgets that are telling you what your wattage is, what your power is, what your heart rate is. And it's, I'm, not a fan of that. I'm a fan of putting in the work and getting it done and going into every session with in, intentionality because with all these, it's almost like 
related to school and, and the test results, assess, the SAT scores. It's a constant judgment zone. You're either succeeding or you're failing. And for me as an athlete, I became a world champion and I, eight years earlier, didn't even know how to swim, but I could not focus on the numbers because I was so bad that if I, I would have given up, but instead right. it's like, I would have quit. quit. Yeah, I would have quit so early on. So right. my philosophy is just, just like what you're saying, put in the work, yeah. give your heart and soul, you know, do the things that, you know, success is inevitable if you do these things. So what a powerful thing to teach, especially in a, in a world where I think there is so much put on test scores and what's on your resume and what does that mean? So I thank you for that because um, you have such a power in this world to share. You're in positions where you can really touch people's lives. And I'm so happy that this is what you are you know, sharing on how to achieve success. Now, along the way, I'm sure you had a lot of failures. Oh, indeed, I did. Well, I, I think I, I do want to, before we get to there, I do want to wait, make one comment that I think is a parallel for you and your life and certainly in mine. What, for those of us not focused on the gadgets, so we're not focused on the metrics necessarily, what we are focused on is development of habits. And as we think about, particularly as a swimmer, I was a distance runner before I became a mountaineer. But the one thing I learned as a distance runner that ultimately led me to climb mountains was the habit of, the, or two things, habits integrated to mindset. So the mindset is, I know that if I'm gonna get to that mountain, there's no shortcut to it. The only way to do it, and it sounds trite, but it, it is in your head, is, is the, the most important step is the next one. And then once you get that, it's the next one. And everything is a series based upon your habits. What led you there in spite of, I'm exhausted, I'm nauseous, it's freezing outside, the snow is, 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 is blowing, and the wind is howling at 40 miles an hour. Well, the only thing I need to think about right now is that next step, not what's the consequence of not making the summit. And I think for you in swimming, as I watch swimmers, it's remarkable the next stroke and the efficiency they bring with the next stroke. And all you're thinking about is the next stroke. And I think these for us, Siri, as we teach children, I think we should, we should teach habits. We should teach the development of the good ones and how to eliminate it when you get into the bad ones. But we don't. We cram, we exam, and we ask them to regurgitate. When you're in the swimming pool, that muscle memory should be focused on the habits, not on the regurgitation of what you learned when you were outside of the pool. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it's so very true. I mean, for eight years, it was repetition. It was habits. habits. It was that next stroke, that next pedal stroke, that next right. run step. And there are no shortcuts. And I love that. I love that you're saying there are no right. shortcuts. However, in this Amazon world of click a button with the next day delivery, many of my students, they want to be CEO at 24. And I said, okay, I, I appreciate your ambition. I love your idealism. And if your ambition is to be a CEO at 24, I'm just going to give you my humble opinion. I'm going to ask you to think differently about this because what you're expecting 
is something that normally earned in 20 to 30 years of a step at a time. I don't know, unless you are Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, they are exceptions to the rule. I don't know how to help you if that's the thing you're focused on. If, if your ambition is 10, 15, 20 years from now, I would like to run a company, what you're talking about is you are earning the credibility. There's nowhere to transfer it. There's no way to make it just appear. You can't will success. And, and, and I wanted to get that out because I think we are kindred spirits and that we recognize the will to success is only based upon your ability to, to work toward the achievement but not the expectation. I mean, this is just gold, Chuck, because (laughs) when I set my, and I had a very specific reason why I wanted to become a world champion. It was for me. I needed to find a respect, a trust in myself, a worthiness. But I remember saying, I don't care if it takes me 50 years. I will not give up until I get there. And so that's the willingness to not put a timestamp on it, because then the expectation as you get closer and closer, and oh my God, I'm still so far from that, you're likely to give up. So that willingness to, I will do whatever it takes to learn, to grow, to become the person that I need to become to be a CEO at 24, but let's take the age away. Yeah. Um, but expectations, I feel, and, and you can speak to this as well, are just debilitating sometimes. Uh, it, it is soul crushing sometimes because they're setting themselves up for disappointment. And I want to say for failure, because we will get to the failures in just a second. I don't think anyone sets out to intending to fail. But I think as an athlete, as, as, as you know, my career, my mountaineering, all the things that I do, I, 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 I welcome everything as a learning opportunity. And if I screw it up, what are you going to do? You know, you just brush yourself off, you get back up. But it's a mindset that you either see as an opportunity, as a burden. And the good news to our listeners, you get to choose which one it is. And, and if you choose that it's an opportunity, you're developing the positivity quotient that helps you to work through that. Because I think resilience, perseverance, adaptability, these are the things that schools don't teach you. But as a swimmer, as a mountaineer, it's not always our best day. Some days it's just not there. So we, we owe giving the best we have that day, which means we adapt. We have to be resilient to the water, to the air, whatever that is. So I, I, I just feel my mission on earth is, is to bring realism. Not, not that anyone has to succeed the way I did it, but I am brutally honest that in order to succeed, that the educational model of cram exam, I think, is flawed. I think we should be teaching, or let me put in perspective, Siri, if you look at LinkedIn, there are 55 million companies that rely on LinkedIn for job advertisements. And every year, LinkedIn publishes of two lists that I'm most curious about. One of them is, what are the top 10 hard skills in demand by employers. And it's cool. And it shows you the different characteristics of what's most in demand. And it's the STEM courses, blockchain, artificial intelligence. Okay, cool. That's not my world, but I get it. The other list series is the top 10 soft skill list. And it's fascinating to see what's the top five. Look at the educational model. 
We teach English, Spanish, history, anthropology, all good. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing the importance of any of them. But now take a look to our listeners. Look up LinkedIn top five soft skills. Number one, creativity. Number two, persuasion. Number three, collaboration. Employers are saying to you, your ability to collaborate is a value characteristic. Number four, adaptability. And number five, which is what I teach at Columbia, emotional intelligence. Look at this list. Now look back to your elementary, high school, and college education and tell me where this, which is what the market value, the market values, tell me where this was on display in your education. Nowhere. Look at the bridge, Siri, that we should build because the marketplace is redefining characteristics to succeed in the modern era. But we're not there. And that's, (laughs) if nothing else, that's my mission to get that and get people market ready with those skills that the market demands. Absolutely incredible. And even the cram exam, regurgitate, forget it has nothing to do with those things. Right. It allows for right. no creativity. It allows for, I mean, all those things that matter most in the world today. So I, I am going to be on the sidelines cheering you on <laughs> in this mission because it sounds just so deeply important. Well, here's the difference because when you asked about success, to me, that list redefines what it means to be a success. Because look at our educational model. You got a 98, somebody else got a 97, Siri is smarter than Kathy. Oh, I think it's crazy, but that's the way people view it. So my emotional intelligence class, I I subhead it, redefining what it means to be smart. So we have IQ, we have now EQ. But what Google tests for is also AQ, adaptability quotient, They test for CQ, cultural quotient. So there's something called career cues. So many of the companies that I work for as an executive coach, what I bring to the curriculum, mostly Wall Street companies, because that's my pedigree, I bring career cues. IQ is one portion of it. But now let's complete the pie in the circle. EQ, AQ, CQ, even XQ, execution quotient, teaching people to execute on a plan. That's not brilliance. That's your ability to implement. So what we have here, Siri, to me, is very much a shift in the redefinition of what it means to be smart that I tried to bring to the people in my world these career cues. Be mindful of these cues because when you looked at the LinkedIn list, three of them, adaptability, creativity, and emotional intelligence are measured by social scientists and valued in professional development programs as important characteristics to climb the career mountain. Why do the high schools and colleges not teach career cues? Okay, well, we do at Columbia. That's what I teach. Columbia is very progressive to the engineering students I teach about, I am vigilant about taking courses. I don't care where you take them, career cues. Be mindful of this is your white brain. If your left brain is technically minded, engineering, finance, all good. Whatever it is, you want to fill half of that mind. But part of the education on the right side of the brain is not filling the mind, it's clearing the mind. 
and then redefining and retooling how do we maximize both sides of the brain to achieve that success? And I'd imagine in swimming, your mindset is equally as important as your stroke. Is that a fair conclusion? I mean, yeah. I found that 80% was mental. Right. 20% was Everything. physical execution. Right. But so Chuck, what has to happen in order for more schools to be taking this on. I mean, I love that Columbia's progressive enough to do this, but what has to happen? Like, what can you do to get this everywhere? Yeah, well, I, I think, and I'm not knocking just the educational system. I think uh, us, we, we, our society, we are one big status quo protection machine. We protect what we know, we're fearful of what we don't. And I think most of my time, about 70% of my time is actually in professional development in, in mostly financial institutions, as I mentioned. But what I bring to them is, is this, and to many, it's this mind blowing, oh my God, I wish I never thought of that. I don't think in order to do it, we, we can go around with a bullhorn and scream this to, you know, hey, college ABC or University of Colorado, my son went to University of Colorado at Denver. I can't walk into that Denver campus with a bullhorn and scream that people have it wrong. Because that's not a way to move people to your cause. The, the, these, when you move them to a clause, it tends to, to a cause, it tends to be a little bit more glacial. You, 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 you provide the mechanism that opens up the mind for them to form those conclusions rather than us trying to beat it down. Yes. So I think the only way, I'm, I'm, and it's not that I'm resigned to it, I'm patient to it, that the more people who succeed, who are in my world, that are enthusiastic and passionate, not just because I taught them, them, I don't care where they learn it, but I think they begin to come to the recognition and realization that there is a much better way. And there is a way to accelerate that career path. If yes. only we had the courage to be able to listen to what the market is telling us instead of what the 18th century college model has to say. And, and a lot of people are utterly afraid of venturing into the thing that isn't conventional. And I think you, me, many of us, we stand on the fact that we don't have to represent the conventions in order to succeed in a way that seems conventional. We come to it from another place. Our job, hopefully, is to inspire, persuade, and provoke a change in other people's mindset so that they may see, oh, my God, there's a whole other thing I'm missing here. Yeah, there is, but you're going to have to get there. I can't do it for you. What I can do is hopefully build the sufficient curiosity for you to come to it. But what's great, Siri, those that do, they see the benefits very quickly. And, and that's, that's, where, that's where I'm blessed because I get the, Chuck, thank you so much. Oh, my God, I had no idea. Yeah, that's it, why you teach. Makes, yeah, and, and this, I always talk about going first. And to me, going first means I get to decide what's possible for me. Right. I get to decide what meaning to give a, partic a particular challenge. I get to decide what story of life I want to live. And this is what you're doing in every single thing that you do. And what I'm feeling in this as well, like if, if more people are hearing about this, and I'm so glad that you're speaking about it here, I'm feeling the personal part of that. What if I'm someone that's a terrible test taker? 
But I'm being told every single day that Susie and, and Jean and Mary are all smarter than me. And so I start developing this belief about myself that I'll never have what they're capable of having because I don't have the smarts. Like I'm feeling this liberation inside of me when I feel that all these other things, emotional intelligence, which I have a lot of, or, you know, creativity, collaborate, all the, the other cues, the execution, all of this, like that is going to give me confidence. That's going to help me elevate, you know, what I dream of creating and really believe that I can create that because it matters. And the truth is it does matter. We're, we're seeing how that matters in, in every area of, you know, business becoming a world champion athlete. Like it's not about the test scores. So I hope, I, I wish there was some way I could get on board with this, Chuck. And, and <laughs> we'll, 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 ha we'll have to bring it to these. But I think, Sarah, you're making a point that, that I think is, is both sad, yet I hope opportunistic. What you're talking about is this massive amount of social judgment. And that, that's accelerated, unfortunately, if I had my phone with me. We all know we're spending way too much time in looking at that thing, which redefines our own self-worth, so to speak. Yeah. What we find, Siri, with many people who are caught in what you're describing, it erodes their self-esteem. Yes. They may be brilliant. They may be incredibly talented, but many people around them are telling them something different. And after a while, it becomes self-fulfilling and they begin to believe it. I want to give credit here in, to my friend, a mentor of mine who is in Boulder, Colorado. His name is Bob Littman, and he's a senior champion in U.S. tennis. He's the Davis Cup champion senior. He's 74 years old. But he wrote a book called Live the Best Story of Your Life, which is epic and biblical to me. Look it up, Bob Lippman. Do you know him by chance? Do you know I Bob Lippman? I don't, but I want to know him. I'm, I'm writing I'm, this down. I'm going to introduce you because you may be neighbors. And he wrote this book, Live the Best Story of Your Life. And as a tennis player, what he talked about is the important time of the 20 seconds in between one play and the next play. And what is the mindset? And that the, the, the champion tennis players they're all equally technically competent as we apply to engineers and doctors and lawyers and bankers. They're all equally competent and all in the definition of success, the right pedigree, Brown, Columbia, Harvard. Okay, all good. But why is one achieving better than the others? And I got so many takeaways out of that book, but that book was written for what you're describing that, you know, ah, it's my life. I get to make the rules. And once people get comfortable that they can throw out the boilerplate social judgments, it's hard to do because now you're unnerving the years of this hardwired thing that you've been surrounded by. But I encourage everyone to look for this book and Bob Littman, L-I-T-W-I-N, because it was life-changing for me. And even though I live in the space of provoking people, helping them to provoke change, the stories we tell ourselves are often the inputs that help us decide whether our life is going to be one of happiness and prosperity or anxiety and judgment. And, and I don't want to say that everyone is equal in this thing, but I think all things being equal, notwithstanding whatever issues people have, I encourage everyone to just draw the line, read the book, and think about what do I want out of this life? What, how do I want to approach it? And what happens in the failures? They, they, they become feedback. 
they become opportunities to relearn and retool. And I think if I could just champion Bob's work to help people redefine what it means to be happy and successful on your terms, not what you're seeing on TikTok and on Instagram, but God knows that is, that is a tall order <laughs> and our work's never done. <laughs> so I love Bob already. Uh, indeed, I knew you would. I'm going to introduce you. It sounds like my mission, my mission is to have people live the story that they want to live and everything that you're talking about right here. So I am going to read his book. I can't wait to meet him. Um, it's just so incredibly important because I think people don't realize that it is in our own hands. Every single, you know, I just survived acute myeloid leukemia. I had 5% chance of surviving. Like I got to choose whether I was going to live the story that this was the end, or if I was going to live the story of, no, this is going to be my most beautiful triumph. And everybody can do that. As, as you're saying, everybody can decide. And I would imagine as you were working through that trauma, what you learned, the lessons you learned in the water must have been applicable to what you learned when you woke up each day fighting this. Absolutely. And Chuck, that's why in my intro introducing you, what you are here to share is applicable to an entrepreneur, a business person, a stay-at-home mom, an athlete, like what you share is so powerful to every single human being on this planet. And that's why I've been so excited to have you here. And I appreciate that. But what, what I hope, there's one other dimension to all of us. I think in, in, in our growing up, when we talk about success and we talk about achievement, we talk about the mind and, and we talk about a brilliant mind, a smart mind, a good, well, that's okay. But I think that is very much borrowed from the, 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 the classics the, in, in, the, in the Renaissance about the, the, the mind and that we are of mind. Yet, we, we as human beings, we, there's a hierarchy for what happens to us when events occur. We feel first, we think second. And I think the educational model doesn't have that right. I think we're, we're, we're so hard trying to, who's the great thinker of the world? Who's got the greatest mind? I don't, I don't gravitate to that. I was like, who at the, when this day is done, who, who feels, so Maya Angelou's quote, people forget what you said, they forget what you did, they never forget how you make them feel. Yes. But I think I want to just underscore that because in this world of anxiety and pressure, people, while we may have a mind that can help them, I think people are looking for comfort and relief and how we can make them feel first because if we don't get that right we don't get the mind right we have to get the heart and the feeling of humanity first and then we can worry about who's going to get the best grade i just think we have it backwards and i think it's a destructive sequence that i hope to flip absolutely and i've heard some of your stuff and you talking about this that it's so much more important to come from the heart first yeah to develop that connection, no matter what conversation you're having. Because and, just... and the good, the good part, that's teachable. Many people, right. in, in particularly my engineering students, are very smart. They're, they're, they're brilliant. And, and to them, they haven't been taught this. And when I teach leadership, my big, big underscore is leadership is a learned behavior. The way swimming, engineering, 
becoming a doctor, their learned behaviors. Well, these are personality traits that we learn. But many people say, no, no, that's not, that doesn't fill the mind. Well, it does. It brings clarity to the mind. It empties it. It clears it. What's wrong with that? When was clear in the mind such a bad thing? Right. right. <laughs> we all need that, including me. We all need that, definitely. <laughs> so speaking of leaders, and, and I love this because that gives hope to those of you out there that are thinking, oh, I'm not a great leader. Right. You can become you can a great leader. Yes, you So can. I love that. In your how would you describe a great leader? Yeah, I, I, a great leader, in fact, I'm, I'm gonna put that into the context. I wanna relate a story here. About four years ago, I, I had an assignment to work with a very large financial technology company who was in the midst of choosing a new CEO. So the CEO at the time was of, of 60-year-old man, very successful individual who adored, and he decided he was going to retire, and he had 18 months to pick a successor. But he didn't pick the successor in a back. He hired me to facilitate the, the things that have to happen in order to choose the successor. So I work with the board of directors for the company, and I work with the C-suite individuals, all of who were eligible, potentially, to become that CEO. And what was most interesting about this project, this was a, a, a very large company, but they, they wanted to be inclusive. It wasn't that the, everybody in the company could, could vote. This wasn't a democracy. This is a meritocracy. But what they did have input into, what are the characteristics? Forget men, women, if they're a doctor, a lawyer, or a banker, it doesn't matter their background. Characteristically, who do you want leading this company? So we went out to the company and we asked them, if you could give birth to a new CEO, irrespective of gender profession, what are the characteristics in this modern world that you apply? And they came back and there were about 34 that showed up. And the board of directors and I agreed, we can't say to the heir apparent, you gotta do 34 things well. It's like, okay. So we narrowed it down to three. We wanted to put it on the half a piece of paper. Here's the interesting part, Siri, about how this company defined the traits of the modern leader in the year 2021. So this is a year ago. The number one characteristic that they wanted out of their leader, three words, grace under fire. In other words, the most important trait was the temperament that our CEO would stay calm under the weight of enormous expectation. So think about swimming or any great athlete, all technically competent, who can maintain the composure when it's 5-5 five, five in the third set and someone's got to go up. If it's Djokovic and it's Federer and Nadal, the mindset, the temperament is going to get right. Mm -hmm. The second, so grace under fire, the second characteristic resolves conflicts effectively. Think about that, conflict resolution. Where is that in, 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 in the structure of our educational model? No, nowhere. So what is that? That's a communicator. One who recognizes I, as the CEO, have to make the decision. I'm willing to take your input. I will respectfully disagree, but ultimately the decision is mine. And here was the third one, my favorite. Empathetic leadership style. 
So they weren't talking about substance or they weren't talking about technical capability. They were talking stylistically about the way the CEO treats people. So here we have nine words of the modern leader. So this isn't just my definition. This was put to the test in a large multinational where so many people had input into what do you value? Now, I'm not saying these are the only three that make a great leader, but I think it was a great illustration of the things that the world values. And look what's not there, where they went to school, what their GPA was, their SAT score. They didn't even, it's not they didn't care, they were indifferent, whether it was the chief legal officer, chief marketing officer, whatever. It didn't even matter to them anymore. It became behavioral. Who, instead of me being in a compliant mode and following somebody because I'm told, it really came down to who would you follow if given a choice, and what do you ascribe to their personality and characteristic? And it was interesting what's not on the list as important as what ultimately appeared. And what was not on the list? Interestingly enough, technical competence was toward the bottom. It was number 10. What we didn't see was their achievements, i.e. in the achievement of he, she, whoever they, whatever they were, they didn't care about the ladder of the resume. They didn't care about how quickly they got it, how old they were, how young they were. All of that went away. What they were really talking about is what we value is an empathetic communicator. Just think about that. An empathetic communicator. Huh. Well, look at the issues companies talk about now diversity and inclusion, women, you know, promoting women, all, all these wonderful things. This is not even a generation ago. We were not having these conversations. It was only just one thought of, well, he probably, he is the heir apparent. But also, Siri, one generation ago in the Fortune 500, there were two women CEOs. 20 years later, there are four, in the Fortune 500. Now there are four, 41. So we went in one generation, in 1999, it was Washington Post and Hewlett Packard. They were the women CEOs. Now we're at 41. We could do a lot better, but this is wonderful. In one generation, we added 40. Well, maybe we'll add 80 in the next generation, then we'll add another 160, and it keeps doubling. So I'm really liking what I'm seeing. I, I think we've got a, a lot more to come, but I think seeing this kind of shift is a validation about what the world is valuing Yes. What do we value? Conflict resolution, empathetic leadership style, calm under pressure. This is wonderful. And it, it, it just I, I, I embraced that list. I said, oh, my goodness, Th this is I could not have preached this. This amazing. And right? the best part that you didn't come up with it. I facilitated. It, I, I was just yeah. I, I, I was fortunate right. enough to be just put it all out there. And then I, I my team and I collected it. And this is what was like, oh, this is cool. And then we found in other companies, very similar. They were worded slightly differently, but I think in most of them, they were, they were skating around very similar traits. Wow. Fascinating. And it, I feel like it's headed in such a great direction. Which right. Is and, and our encouragement to our listeners, pay heed to this. If you, if you have those ambitions, and the rest of the world is telling you to go in this way, the conventional way, 
I'm, I'm not making any judgment here. I'm simply trying to say, I hope I can inspire you to not follow the crowd because anyone who makes those positions, they're not followers. They have the courage to make a leap, to take a risk, to be unconventional. And we love that. I love the unconventionality because it's what gets noticed. Yeah. Conventionality is safe. Oh, good. If that's your thing and safety is your primary concern, I understand. But if you desire to get to that top and safety is your first concern, that is going to be one tough mountain to climb. Yes. So know what your priorities are and what you are willing to give up in order to receive. Uh, that is a what they call mic drop. <laughs> right. I mean, go. So yeah, boom. Thank you. That's, that's You're the word I always use. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Okay. The climbing, the mountaineering. You're yes. incredible. You're not just someone who does it for fun. You're actually a really accomplished climber. Yeah. And I heard you say, and I, I mean, your leadership is, is uh, sorry, now it's uh, climbing, climbing, International Climb Leadership yeah. International. Climb Leadership International is a company. So there's obviously a connection yeah. between climbing in your career and climbing in reality. And can you share with that the metaphor between climbing and career? Yeah, well, I, I want to just provide the context that yes. when I was 41 years old, I was the public spokesman for my company called Bloomberg. So Mike Bloomberg, as people may know, mayor of New York for three terms ran for president, presidential candidate, and my boss for 14 years. I had the good fortune that for many years, I was the company's spokesman. And I stepped on stage all over the world in the service of my organization. On 9-11, I was scheduled to speak in the World Trade Center at three o'clock that afternoon. I was originally scheduled to speak at 9.30 in the morning. About a couple months before, a friend of mine who had the afternoon slot called me, said, can we switch? Yeah, no problem. So we switched, unfortunately, he was there at 9.30. I was on my way to the building. I never made it in there, but three of my Bloomberg colleagues, two of which were 24 years old and one of them was 22 years old, they were there and unfortunately they were there when the building collapsed. And many of my friends, I lost 16 friends, that, oh 16 funerals I attended. Oh, I'm so sorry. As sad as that day was, and, and it was, you know, my family thought I was dead. My brothers thought, you know, I was unaccounted for for a few hours, so I was mm -hmm. presumed dead. And it, it, it's something when it comes to you, and it's not that I came back to life. I was fortunate enough not to have made it to the building at the time. But I thought about this event. Did it happen to me? Did it happen for me? It really pushed me and caused me to be reflective about it wasn't my day to die. Okay, this is a gift. Is there something I can do with this? And, and I wasn't exactly sure. I, a little in a fog as we all were trying to find our friends, make sure everybody was okay, and I was fine. Not a scratch, but, and I don't want to say I was wounded. I was fortunate that I was still standing. Yeah. So I said, if there's nothing I can do to bring back the lives of this Bill, Peter, and Paul, or the, the very young people that were there because of, in, in support of my event, I can't bring them back. I can't call their parents and say, your children are alive. And maybe there's something I can do in the service of this event. Anyway, to, to make a long story short, on 9-11-02, I stood on the summit of Mount Rainier. 
I'd always been a distance runner in my adult life. And I had read a book about the year before 9-11 by John Plathauer called Too Too Thin Air. Wonderful book that described a tragic event in Mount Everest, but it really fueled my curiosity. I saw myself in that book. And I thought about, well, I'm a distance runner. I run marathons. Mountain climbing felt like distance running. That mindset, the tactical shifts. Some days you're there, some days you're not. You're getting rained on, you're getting snowed on. It's sunny and 80 degrees. And I said, huh, maybe I should try this. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I have to do something outside of myself. And so I signed on to this mountaineering journey in, in the Cascade Mountains. I had no idea. I, I got trained in rock. I learned how to climb rocks, vertical rocks. And I went on this mountain climb on 9-11-02. And the funny thing is I didn't engineer it to happen on the anniversary. It was just the weekend that was yeah. good. A year later, Surrey, I'm on the summit of Kilimanjaro. A year later, I'm climbing the Matterhorn and I'm climbing in Alaska and the Andes. But here's why. As I walked up these mountains, I was led by guides, incredible, smart, generous, kind people. They were technically competent, but that does not describe them. Their level of generosity, of emotional intelligence, of leading just a mere mortal like me up this mountain that I had no idea what I was doing. They instructed me, they inspired me, and they provoked me to think about the world of my own possibilities. So at first, that mountain that I climbed was this spiritual event that I wanted to honor the service of the friends that I lost. What I didn't know at the time, in retrospect, it was leading me to where I am today. So when I decided to, to not do the Wall Street life in the terms of representing these big companies, I formed my company and I was... I, formed my company as an executive coaching company to teach emotional intelligence and public speaking to companies that would hire me. My book is called A Climb to the Top. And I titled it that because I use mountaineering as a metaphor for how we climb careers. And the backpack for the career climbing are not ice axes and crampons. There are 10 different attributes that I attribute in the book called the 10 commandments of great communicators. Each one of them is a tool. So chapter eight is called the power of the pause. And so I'm relating that now and I will have a little bit of radio silence here because it is a tool of when we are speaking, how we modify our speech patterns, our vocal variety, and also the cadence and the tempo so that people may catch up to our words for maximized absorption. That is not a tool series they teach in school. So I use that in all of these different techniques that I developed as a public spokesman that I included into the book. So it made it a no-brainer to say, a climb to the top. Here's a toolkit. Whatever your top is, it doesn't mean that you have to be CEO. But I didn't write it so that it be, you could become the world's greatest public speaker. I simply wrote it if you have dinner with your spouse and you're sitting at a table, how do you communicate? Speaking to your children, you can scream at them or 
you can read according to the top and you can learn techniques as to how to help your children do whatever you ask them to do. So all of that series, just this wondrous, joyous things that have occurred in my life that allowed me the opportunity to be able to bring to the world everything in the metaphor of climbing. So to me, you know, some people say, give me a hammer or give, me, or give somebody a hammer and everything looks like a nail. I, I think in my case, everything's a mountain because it should be, and they should be hard. If it were easy, why would we do it? You know, you're, you're overcoming, you know, when you were diagnosed, I can only imagine, oh my God, what a mountain you have ahead of you because the stakes are so high. Yeah. Everyone gets to determine in their lives, what are the stakes? You have two paths. You can take the easy path. Okay, that's cool. Or you can take the path where you get to know yourself because we come to, we learn about ourselves in the struggle as I'm sure you did every morning you woke up and said, how am I going to get through this? Well, on a mountain, it's hard. Oh my God. You, 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 it's hard finding your breath. You're nauseous. You got headaches. Yet we do it anyway because when it's all said and done, oh my God, what a joyous thing. How fortunate I was to do this hard thing. Careers are hard. The 24-year-old that wants to be a CEO, yeah, I, I embrace it. I get it, but it shouldn't be. It's never going to be that easy, and it shouldn't be because I don't think that's a gift to you to become the 24 CEO. No, no. So, so that really that series, that's the metaphor, and I hope uh, whatever to anyone, whether it's dancing, swimming, baseball, find a way, I hope, to apply a, an easy, accessible metaphor that is planted in your mind when on days when you're just not feeling it, and we all have them, we can get through them. Like what, do we, what is the conversation we have with ourselves? And imagine you were speaking to your best friend. That's you. What do you tell yourself when you don't want to get out of the tent that day and there's you know, a couple thousand vertical feet you need to get to? We'll get there because of the love and generosity of these guides, Siri. So I said, I'm the guide now. I'm the captain. I don't guide. I, I sometimes guide people up mountains. I've done plenty of that. But I'm a coach and I'm a, I'm, I'm a teacher because I honor the spirit of the people who took me up Kilimanjaro and the Matterhorn and all these other wonderful mountains I've climbed. What, what, else, what else is there? That's, we measure our lives not by the automobiles, the, the house, whatever, that's all good, but the lives we touch and the communities we built. That is how I came to redefine success. How do I do it? This is a way that I found works for me that I hope works for the other people in my gravity so that they could go give their thing. God, that's just so beautiful. Well, I wanna, I wanna add here the Pablo Picasso quote because I think about this every day. The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Because what good is it if we keep it to ourselves? You, Siri, give it to others. I try as best I can so that give others-, it to others. Well, I, I want, but I want others to give it to others. Yes. Because whatever that gift, it doesn't have to be my gift or your gift. Everyone's got it. It's all there. You just have to be open to it. And not everybody is because they're just focused on those tactical things. I, and I understand, but I hope we can just breathe and give each other a big hug and just, okay, it's all good. Whatever is going on in Eastern Europe, our heart is out to them. We're so sorry for that. But we, gotta, we, we can make the difference here because I can't go to Ukraine and fight their battle. Neither can you. But 
we have things we can do for each other. And this is the method, Siri, that I'm not say if I chose it or it chose me. I'm, I'm not sure how we got here. It doesn't matter. We're here. So <laughs> be here now, be somewhere else tomorrow. I'm here now. Right. And I feel when you tell that story, because one of my questions was going to be, was there a moment in time that changed everything for you? And it sounds like it was that climb and the people that were helping you there. Is, is that when yeah. you had yes. this shift? Well, there, there were two moments in my life. There was one, it, certainly as an adult, absolutely. That, that, that it, it, I don't want to say that event changed me. That event led me to think about how to change myself. Yeah. I think one other thing I do want to relate, though, which was the turning point earlier in my life, and I, I, I think, I hope I, I, I'm telling something relatable. I know you can't see me. If you're on YouTube, you see me. I am 5'9". I'm about 175 pounds. When I was 13 years old, I was four inches shorter and 60 pounds heavier. I dealt with teenage obesity, or it dealt, it dealt with me. And my father had, when I was 13, I stepped on a scale and I weighed 207 pounds. And you imagine six more inches on my chest, just, you know, I was, I was, I, I, I dealt with that, that issue. It doesn't matter how I got there. My father was my guide during that time where he helped me to confront what this thing into a 13 year old to be 210 pounds when you're trying to play baseball and go to the dance and, and be social, people shunned me. They wanted nothing to do with me, not because of what I had inside, but because how I appeared outside. And with my father's help and guidance of some very generous people, I lost about 55 pounds in the next year. So I, I went on a tear. I woke up to the fact that I need to change myself. And while some people may look at what I went through, and I was bullied, and it was horrible, but I don't see it that way. It was the best gift I've ever had, because what it taught, it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me resilience and the, the everyday developing good eating habits, because when you develop good eating habits, you develop other good habits, because you're attuned to the body, to the mind, and to the intuition that we use to drive our decisions. So every day is a decision. Do not eat that. Do not drink that soda. That's a decision. But I say that, Siri, because even though it was 45 years ago, I'll never forget how I felt about myself, but also in human nature, how, how people viewed me and how I now began to view them. Yes. And it was a wonderful, as horrible and as as much as my self-esteem was, was just at a rock bottom, I learned this thing of resilience, of, of changing, of stepping up and deciding who I wanted to become as opposed to the rest of the world dragging me into this, this, this distraught thing cycle that I was in. And at 13, you just don't have a clue about life. But when you come to learn about yourself and you can empathize, and maybe that's why I learned emotional intelligence, because I lived that. I know what it's like to be bullied. So I think, Siri, looking at it two ways, my 13-year-old self and my 41-year-old self had very tragic things happen that I, I, I could only think something good came out of something bad, because what choice did I have? Absolutely. God, this is just, I'm connecting so deeply with you because I 
just there's so much beauty and power and such a gift in this and well, and i do that gift that you got from one of your greatest struggles right yeah I, 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 and I think for all of us, so many people work so hard in the avoidance of the struggles. And I understand that. No, nobody sets out, oh, let me go into that tragedy. No. But, but life happens. It gets in the way of making your plans. And, and they're unexpected. And I think often the way we look and define ourselves is, is not the, the act that occurred. It's our response and yes. our action to the event. So whether it was your illness, your diagnosis, I cannot imagine what it was like when that day you were giving that diagnosis. How did it feel? How, how did, what was that space that, and, 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 and how long did it take for you to come to this, huh, okay, how was it for you? I mean, it was, because at that time, I had spent a lifetime having in my life what I dreamed of for a lifetime, love, love for myself, love for my amazing wife, right. a career that just, it was my mission, my purpose. Right. And then it get, I got the phone call and my wife was standing beside me screaming. She heard the news at the same time that you did. It was, it was simultaneous. It wasn't, it wasn't a different event. No, right. so my doctor's on speaker and she's, okay screaming at the top of her lungs, tears coming down her face. I'm hearing the tone of my doctor's voice. And I can honestly say, Chuck, that in that moment, I thought, that's not the story I'm living. Everyone's, everyone, and, and it's like time froze because everyone is acting like this is the end. And I made the decision in that moment i said stop this is this isn't my time to go i'm going to survive and i'm going to thrive and i needed to declare that i needed to go first and say this is the story that i'm going to live around this and because i do i've always had this belief that life is happening for you not to you and i thought okay so this means i started immediately thinking about why is this happening? What does this mean? Okay, I'm meant to learn something. I have this desire to want to touch as many lives as I possibly can in beautiful and powerful ways. And through this challenge and overcoming this, I will become that person that can do that. So you decided to write your story. You were making right in that words. moment. Right, right in that moment. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And, and I think so many, whether it is that word that requires treatment, obesity, anxiety, mental, whatever that may be, to everyone listening, we feel you, we understand whatever it is, you're not alone. Because many of us, in spite of we wear whatever badge of success people may ascribe to us, it was, it was not easy. And, and it sh maybe it shouldn't have been, maybe it's supposed to be that way. Yes. But the great athletes of the world, we watch them on television, we watch them do amazing things. They didn't do that one day. They came to it over the course of time. And for those, your struggle, my own obesity struggle, they're our best teachers. Absolutely. They are our most powerful teachers in my right. mind. And one thing I want to add to my story, because I'm making it sound kind of easy, like, oh, I just made that. Just, no. I right. mean, 
This is amidst great pain, great fear, great sadness. But in those moments, you must participate in your own rescue in that moment. You must grab your hand and lead yourself to where you know is going to be the best spot for you to get through this. And it's a constant disciplining of your focus and of your thinking and and of it's and everyone can do it we all have that choice and um, well that's an interesting way you put it and i think that is something that we should all come to terms with when when are you called to self-rescue Mm-hmm. And I think to many people, sometimes in their quest to be idealistic and generous, sometimes they forget about themselves on the path to healing others. And I understand that. And I, I admire and appreciate those giving souls. But I think what you went through, when I, my 13-year-old self, even though I didn't have the perspective of an adult, I think that self-rescue mechanism is, is, is a critical thing to recognize that it has to be number one. And, and you are not being selfish or self-absorbed because you're self-rescuing. We, we have to figure out how to survive before we learn how to thrive. It has to be in that order. And I think some yes. people, Siri, they want to go right to thrive. Well, did you learn to survive? Oh, you mean there's something in between? Yes. 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 Right. Yeah. right. And, and if there hasn't been something in between yet, if you give it enough time, something's going to appear. And Absolutely. You want it all to be good and joyous, but unfortunately, life is just not that way. Exactly. So, exactly. so we, we, we turn and we react and we become more adaptable as a result of those challenges and struggles. And I think the best stories of success series that I appreciate most are those ones of the twist and turns that were not a straight line up the mountain that had lessons learned with every input of the fulcrum on those curves every time the thing changes what happened in those moments and what did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about others and then as you well know i'm sure from this you find out who your friends are quite quickly absolutely yeah. <laughs> who, who's who's on the team yeah who's going in the back row and right. who's coming in the front row right chuck i have one last question and so at the end of your days you know how you you read a book and you think about what were the three takeaways that i got from this book what will be the three takeaways a hundred years from now that people will get from witnessing how you lived your life yeah no i appreciate it and i love this one well the first thing that i want to say and if i had to have one takeaway it's it's a mind it's a takeaway of mindset And I'll say it as clearly as I can. The world rewards your inner certainty. And and, and I want to let that breathe for just a second. Because I think, Siri, what I find in so many people that I work with, as brilliant as they are, beautiful, all the right things, they, they struggle with confidence, accessibility, visibility, all of these things sometimes even leading them to suffer from imposter syndrome because they think I'm not good enough, I'm not tall enough, I'm not smart enough. I wanna dispel that. I I think everyone has to decide to be certain and convicted in your decisions and to, 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 to own them. Even if they lead you, unfortunately, to failures, that's an opportunity, that's feedback, it's not a burden. But not everybody thinks that way, that's my first takeaway. I love it. 
Thank you. My second takeaway, I think each of us are blessed in that we can all point to one or two phenomenal teachers that made a difference in, in our lives. And I want to point out to my debate professor at Syracuse, Eric Skopek, who, who, who my one class with him in debate had more weight than 39 other classes combined. That's how important. And my biggest regret is I didn't tell Eric there when I graduated. I tracked him down 35 years later and he was living in the Philippines just to call to tell him how much he meant to me. So, and, and, and shame on me for waiting that long. I didn't even know if he remembered me, he did. But, um, and, and I think my second takeaway is, I know most people when, and I lost both my parents to cancer and I've seen people on their deathbeds, they tend to regret two things. Number one, I wish I had taken more risks. And number two, I wished I had helped more people. So let the second one be, if you are contemplating doing something and you don't have the courage, the risk is in not trying. So number two, do it, take the leap, in spite of everyone else telling you it may not be right, if you feel it's right, take it. And number three, and it leads to a little bit of number two, back to the teachers. I think we grow up thinking, that's an English teacher, that's a Spanish teacher, that's a coach, all good. I think the best thing that we can do as teachers, and this is how sometimes I start my classes, the third takeaway, we are all each other's teachers. And, and we, we as teachers need to be, and I hope, need to, I need to be isn't the right word. I hope I can encourage people to bring kindness and humility as the best part of being the teacher. And that when we think about who is in our community, when we define what it means to be a success, on back to the platform of the lives we touch, the communities we build. The only way we can touch lives and build communities is that we all see learning opportunities from each other. And I don't know more than you. If you got something you can teach me, I have something you can teach you. There is no teacher-student. We are all teachers. We are all students. And we are all in this together. That's my third takeaway. Amen. Chuck, you are extraordinary. Now, I had... I'm not going to talk expectations because expectations only lead to disappointment. But I was so looking forward to this conversation and you have just exceeded my every hope. I am going to, I mean, talk about teachers. Um, you have given so much gold and powerful, powerful insights and messages to our listeners. So I just want to thank you. And I hope that, and I know you will in every moment, just continue to shine your light, share your wisdom, spread this, these amazing insights that truly are changing the world. Um, I feel so blessed to, that you've touched my life and I thank you for taking this time. How can people continue to learn from you, hear from you? Uh, well, but before I call out those coordinates here, let me first thank you for, the, for coming into my life, for, for the opportunity to be able to collaborate with you on your wonderful program. To your listeners that otherwise we may not know each other, I do hope we cross paths and that we can all teach each other something. But I am grateful for all of the wonderful people that have helped me to get to this point. And I hope that I can have, touch lives and build communities. But we do this together. That's why you have your podcast. 
We are all communicators in this world, and I thank you for the opportunity. As to our listeners to where to find me, a couple different places. My website is just my name, chuckgarcia.com. If you remember that, you'll find me. Uh, I am on Instagram and on all the social mediums, but my email address, let me put that out there. It's chuck at climb leadership. Climb is in climb amount. Chuck at climbleadership.com. You can always reach me there. Or what I could encourage you to do, if you go to chuckgarcia.com and you want to take a leadership assessment and maybe learn something about yourself, there is a tab um, and you'll see it. It's called assessment. Well, there's a tab called engage. Click the engage button. You're going to see something called assessment. Click the assessment. It asks you about your leadership competencies, whatever your opinion is, public speaking and emotional intelligence. The three things that I do when, when I teach and when I coach, you can take it. It comes to me, no one else sees it, just me. And I'll shoot you a copy of A Climb to the Top, either audio or PDF, whatever you prefer. But I would like to offer that to you. And the only thing that I ask, if the book has value to you, pass it on. Oh my God, thank you so much. That is so generous. And yes, I have to say, read A Climb to the Top. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. Chuck, thank you. You're amazing. We Siri. love you. Thank you. Love you too. I bow to the divine in you and to all of the namaste to everyone out there. Stay safe, stay humble, stay kind. But thank you so much for the opportunity to contribute here today. Oh, thank you, Chuck. You're extraordinary. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and sharing this precious time with me. Please remember to subscribe and to leave me a review. You can find me on Instagram at Siri Lindley, Facebook Siri Lindley, and Twitter at Seltz, S-E-L-T-S. You can also reach me via email at info at Have an amazing day and shine on.